Hello, my lovely listeners. I'm Dr. Mary Barson. And I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. Welcome to this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. Good morning, lovely listeners. It's Dr. Lucy here again. I am without my gorgeous friend, Dr. Mary, today, but I have a guest with the most beautiful voice that I think you are all going to love because, you know, we all love an Irish accent. So I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast an Irishman, Brian Keane, who is well-established over there in the nutritional space and the fitness industry and... You know, our favorite thing to talk about mindset, that is also one of his pillars. So I am super excited to talk to him today, and I think he's going to share some gems with us. So Brian, welcome to the podcast. Dr. Lucy, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Ah, as am I. As am I. I think it's going to be a rollicking, good fun podcast. It's interesting. So we, at the start of the year, like I I try and have a word. I know it's a bit cliche. Last year, my word was cultivate, which is a great word because you can just apply that to anything. But this year, my word is fun. So I think we're going to have fun today. I think so. I'm really looking forward to it. As I said, right before we went on air, we've got a million different things we can talk about based on all the conversations we've had. And, you know, you've given me some wake up calls that self-soothing versus self-care podcast that you did was a bit of an eye opener for me on my side. Um, So I know we're not talking on that today, but uh, I'm really impressed with the work you're doing. So I'm looking forward to hopefully serving your audience with some mindset and nutrition tips that will help them. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess a couple of things that come to mind. So you're clearly Irish, which, you know, we love. Australians love a good Irish accent. And in fact, I did see some sort of, I think it was a survey once on, you know, the most easy listening English, you know, accents in for English speaking people. And Irish accents were at the top. Sadly, New Zealanders, and I know we have a lot of New Zealanders, they're at the bottom. And I think Australia was just above England. So, you know, (laughs) bad luck for us, but uh, good luck for you. (laughs) So um, tell me, tell me about your life. I just really want to start with, you know, what do you do? Who do you serve? And what are your favorite things to talk about? Yeah, so I have a little bit of a different story to how I kind of got into the health, wellness and fitness industry to most. I was a primary school teacher for four years. That was my background. And I kind of fell into the fitness industry by accident for the most part off the back of having studied in university to become a teacher. And I'd say I was 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes into my first ever job in a school in a year three classroom in London, Dr. Lucy, when I had this realization, oh my God, this isn't what I want to do. I have spent, I've spent four years in university and now I'm doing this job and I can't picture myself doing this for the next 40 years. And to cut a long story short, I stuck with that job and I worked as a teacher for four years to just give people a bit of a premise. It wasn't a quit there and then moment, but I came home that Christmas. So we started in September. I came home that Christmas and I was talking to my mom, who's the closest person to me, has been literally my pillar and my rock my whole life. And I was telling her how much I hated my job and what I was doing. And she asked me a question that I've since put to so many people that I'd never considered in all of my 24 years on this planet up to that point. She said, what would you do for free? And I, I never thought about it. And I came back to her and said, well, I would work in a gym for free. I was like, I love fitness. I love working out. I love training. I would love to be in that industry. And she said, okay, well, why don't you go and do that? <laughs> and it was such a, a, a simple but unbelievably 
profound way of thinking for me at the time. And over the next few years, I didn't make the jump straight away. I went and got all my level two fitness instructor courses and level three certified personal trainer, then my sports nutrition, then my nutrition, my strength and conditioning over the next couple of years. And for two years, I worked as a teacher during the day and I worked as a personal trainer in a gym at nighttime. And it got to the point where I was getting paid to be a personal trainer in a gym and I couldn't believe somebody was paying me every time I get money handed over. I'm like, I can't believe I get paid for this. And it gave me a little bit of a sign and a signal that I should probably try and make this full time and make a go with this. So in 2014, I moved back home, back very close to where I grew up in the west of Ireland and started from scratch before I had any social media, before I'd written any books, before I had any podcasts. I basically moved back with my goal of what I call in books, getting my ladder against the right wall. With teaching, the analogy that I've used is it felt like I had spent years climbing the ladder and then got to the top and it was up against the wrong wall. And with personal training and with fitness, it felt like, yes, I'm at the bottom of the ladder, but it's up against the right wall. And over the you know last eight years, I've gone from one-to-one personal training to online coaching is what I do with people now. I've written several books that did phenomenally well. My first book, The Fitness Mindset, came out in 2017. It spent 16 weeks on the Amazon bestseller list and sold thousands of copies, way better than I ever dreamed. Like I'd love to be like, Dr. DC, I knew. Like I knew that book would do amazing. <laughs> but, I, but, but I didn't. I wrote it to try and serve my audience because a lot of my clients were struggling with the mindset element of fitness. Like a lot of them knew how to get in shape, like, you know, diet a little bit tighter, move more, train more, exercise more to a degree, but they were self-sabotaging or they were falling off track or they weren't setting goals or they had unrealistic expectations or their mindset was completely off. They weren't dealing with stress or their anxiety or their worry, all these things that were inhibiting their progress in the gym or outside of the gym. And that book did so well because I think it probably hit a gap that hadn't been previously covered. And then over the last few years, I've spent time with, you know, like I I love what I do. Like I literally have one of those jobs that I can't believe I get paid to do when it comes to speaking to cool people on podcasts, coming on podcasts like this and speaking with people like you, Dr. Lucy, writing the books and, you know, doing the courses, the programs and working with my clients. And I have that balance. You know, I've got my family. I've got my daughter who's, you know, nearly seven now. She's seven next month. And I've got that kind of wonderful life balance at the minute that I'm very happy that I've been able to build. And yeah, I've been very lucky. I I specialize in that mindset side of fitness and mindset side of food, you know, not using food to soothe, making sure that you're not being an emotional eater, that you're making your nutrition work for you and you're not demonizing food and separating it into good and bad categories and all these things that could potentially hold people back. So that's a a long-winded way of uh, saying how I got to where I am now. Uh, I love that story. And you know, have you you heard of the um, concept of ikigai? No. Okay. So I love so ikigai is a Japanese phrase, and the way I remember it is it rhymes with sticky eye. So if you can't quite remember it, just go. And it is like a Venn diagram, except there's four circles that intersect. And with your circles, you pick something that you're good at, something that the world needs, something that you love doing, and then something that you can get paid for. And in the middle of that intersection is your ikigai, which becomes your life purpose. I love that. So you've basically just described beautifully your life purpose. Oh, I'm definitely going to use that, ikigai. 
icky guy, sticky eye. I know, it's a goodie. And I think it, you know, whenever people move off their path, if you come back to that, it it just just makes sense. It does. It's one of those things that I flip-flopped when I'm offering advice to people because I had, for me, Lucy, I already knew for as long as I can remember how much I loved fitness and training and working out and eating a certain way. But I had like a fear disguised as practicality element when it came to setting up a career in the fitness industry. I was afraid to do something that I thought that, well, if I do it and I turn my, this is, this sounds so stupid when I say it back in hindsight, but because I loved fitness so much, I was afraid that if I did it as a career, I would stop to love it. And then I would have nothing effectively. And it's so silly. It's literally like saying, you know, you found the most amazing person, your romantic partner in the world. Don't spend any time with them. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> silly. But it's, get sick of them. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just in case it's the career equivalent of that. Um, but that was fear disguised as practicality for me where I was, I would have language like, you know, I shouldn't leave a safe and secure job, you know, inverted commas, you know, in quotes that fear was something that held me back. And it's funny because for me, it was in the career sense, but I see it with people with their nutrition and with their diet all the time where they have these self-limiting beliefs and they're nearly afraid to either in the keep the analogy I use, get their ladder against the right wall with their nutrition or just get over whatever it is or get into the root of the issue. Like if you have, you know this better than anybody, Dr. Lucy, with emotional eating, using food to soothe, binge eating and all things that I've struggled with myself, there's roots and there's a, there's something under going on underneath that can be very difficult to get to and there can be fear around that. But once you remove or understand that to get to the root of that fear, like fear for the most part is a lack of data. Like once you get more information and more data on what's going on within you and why you're reacting this way and behaving this way, it makes it easier to put plans in place around it. So I think it's an important one for people. It definitely was for me when I first heard it and internalized it that that fear disguises practicality can really hold you back and if you're trying to get to an end goal of healing your relationship with food or even healing your relationship with yourself when it comes to your self-care and looking after yourself you have to make sure you're seeing it the right way because you don't want to get in your own way and have your own obstacle being you know fear when actually that's the thing that's probably going to support you if you learn to get to the root of it ah totally Totally. And I, I love that fact that you've brought up that fear because our brains are so hard. I mean, they're hardwired to avoid risk, you know, which makes sense because risk comes, you know, with the potential outcome of death. And as a species, we're trying to avoid dying. So, you know, anything that's a little bit new or a bit scary is something that we will often avoid. And the stories that our brain can offer to keep us safe as you said, when you reflect back on them, they're so ridiculous. But at the time, they sound reasonable. You know, they sound like a reasonable story. You know, it sounds reasonable that you wouldn't want to make a career out of fitness and nutrition in case you then get sick of it and then you've got no hobbies left because, you know, that sounds reasonable, except that it's a bit of BS. And um, it's so interesting because, again, <laughs> exactly. with with weight loss, so as a common story I hear, and you, and you probably do too, particularly for people that have maybe got a lot of weight to lose, they then get worried about, well, what am I going to do with the loose skin? And it's like, I don't want to lose weight because then I'm going to have to deal with the loose skin. It's like, how about we just get to that point? Yeah, worrying about spending your millions before you've earned it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
And I think I've heard I've heard a couple of um, like money mindset coaches who talk about that idea when people start getting worried about, well, how am I going to deal with all the taxes? It's like, yeah, well, how about you just get the money first? <laughs> so yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a yeah. really a really good point. So when you have people who who come to you and and you can see them getting in the way of themselves, which you know is is human nature, what sort of advice do you offer them? It depends on the person and where I think they're holding themselves back because it generally comes into two forms in terms of I'd say 80 to 90% of people when they start to hold them back. I've seen it come in two shapes and two forms. One is they can't focus on the present moment and what they need to do because either they're so daunted or they've completely overanalyzed and analysis by paralysis and all the work they'll need to do to get to the end goal. So if they've got 20 pounds to lose, 50 pounds to lose, 100 pounds to lose, they're so focused on, oh my God, where do I start? There's so much to do. And I tell them to focus on what I call in books, the acronym for WIN. How can you win? W-I-N. What's important now? So what's the thing you can do now that helps you get towards that specific goal? I get people to focus. Well, what's the thing you can do now? Is it preparing a meal? Is it making a good food choice? Is it, you know, doing some form of meditation? Is it journaling because you're feeling stressed? What's the thing you need to do now that's going to help you in this moment? With a lot of people... The more we do that, you know this better than anybody, Dr. Lucy, it becomes habitual because that becomes your routine where instead of focusing on this anxiety in the future and all this uncertainty, you're like, well, what's in my control right now? Controlling the controllable. I can control this moment and what I do next. That helps a lot of people. And over time, it becomes conditioned. The other area where people tend to fall down from my experience when it comes to not knowing where to start is not knowing why they're doing it and not being clear on the underlying driver or motivation or desire to why it is that they want to get to where they want to go to. And an example I use in the last book, The Keen Edge, Mastering the Mindset for Real Lasting Fat Loss, was a story from when I was a one-to-one personal trainer. I had one of my girls come into me who said, I want to lose 20 pounds. And I have used the same category or the same line of question over and over again for as long as I was doing one-to-one personal training before I moved online a little bit even now. But I asked her, I said, okay, that's great. Why do you want to lose 20 pounds? She said, oh, well, I've got my sister's wedding coming up. I said, okay, that's brilliant. Why do you want to lose 20 pounds for your sister's wedding? She goes, well, there's a dress I really want to fit into. I was like, okay, brilliant. Why do you want to lose 20 pounds for your sister's wedding so you can fit into a dress? She goes, well, I want to feel sexy and confident when I'm at the wedding. I was like, okay, great. Well, I was like, why do you want to lose 20 pounds for your sister's wedding to fit into your dress so that you'll feel sexy and confident? She goes, well, actually a guy that I've really fancied for years is going. I was like, okay, gotcha. And what that did was it helped me understand why she was here, but it also made her figure out, well, this is my underlying driver. This is my motivation right now for this goal I'm trying to hit. And it doesn't have to be something like that. It can be completely different. You get people who are like, well, I want to be able to run around with my kids or, you know, I want to live longer or I want to feel better. And I just, you know, I feel crap or rubbish within myself because my energy is poor and, you know, I'm stressed out all the time and I'm turning to food. You have different underlying drivers and 
wise, but you need to know what that is because otherwise it gets too difficult because you're relying then on motivation, which I would argue is a terrible strategy for long-term success. Like motivation is a state. It's a feeling. It changes. It's the analogy I use is it's like if you're out on a paddle boat and the, a gust of wind comes, that's motivation. Your paddling is your habits and what you do consistently every day. You can't rely on that wind. You can't rely on that motivation. It's just basically the way you feel. Successful people, one of my mentors used to always tell me that successful people do what they have to do regardless of how they feel. And I think when it comes to nutrition and it comes to exercise or fitness or whatever regimen, it's not about how you feel because there's days when you're not going to want to work out and there's days when you're not going to want to go for a walk after work and there's days when you're not going to want to eat you know, a nutrient-dense meal and you're going to want to eat the box of cookies or the box of biscuits or the chocolate that's there. And I'm not saying to avoid those foods. Like I think... I think an area I try to bring awareness around with people is, you know, there's no good or bad food. Like, you know, this Dr. Lucy, like I'm a nutritionist on my side and I tell people food has no morals. Like a piece of broccoli is not going to save you from a burning building and a chocolate bar is not going to stab you down a back alley. I'm like, there's no good or bad food. They have no morals. There's nutrient dense food and there's calorie dense food. There's food that's void of nutrients and food that has loads of nutrients and everything in between. And it's not to avoid chocolate and cookies and biscuits, et cetera. If you want to eat those foods, and you can heal your relationship and the way that you approach them, then that's not going to be a problem. The danger really is in the dose, particularly with people who have, you know, food to soothe, emotional eaters, binge eating, etc. From my experience anyway, again, other people better qualified to speak, but from my own experience and working with people, there are areas that you want to look at. And I think based on where you fall on the spectrum, whatever your goal is, particularly if it's weight loss, know why you're doing it and then focus on what you can do today if you're finding that you're getting that analysis by paralysis or where you're overthinking everything that you need to do to hit your end goal. And that can normally help when it comes to hitting whatever it is you're looking to do. Absolutely. And you know what I love? What you just described there was the idea of what can you do right at this moment, right now? And I think um, we share often this picture, and I'm sure you've seen it, which is a ladder. And one of the ladders has like lots of tiny little rungs and the other ladder has maybe just giant rungs. And so when people focus on these giant rungs, they actually can't reach them. So they stay at the bottom. Whereas when you just do the little rungs and you scramble up them, you get to the top. And it feels like, well, what's the point of just doing this tiny and significant thing, except it makes all the difference. It is. Success leaves clues. And when you're speaking to people and you're talking to people. Say that again. Say that again. I love that saying. Success success leaves clues. Like if you look at people who are successful in what they're doing, there's a common thread running through all of their lives and the things that they do. And you can either model or take the best ideas from them because they're leaving those clues behind. And successful people with weight loss, with fat loss, this goes for most areas of life, are taking those small steps and compounding that positive choices that they're making consistently throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year. Like the days lead into weeks, the weeks into months, months into years. It's about what you do consistently every day that determines how it'll go. What I say in books is tell me what you do every day and I'll tell you how you'll look in a year. That's effectively breaking down your food, your exercise, your stress management, your sleep quality, etc. Um, but yeah, success leaves clues. I think it's a very, it's something that I've done in terms of modeling and taking advice from other people, but also it's a recommendation I give to clients and people who are struggling when they're not sure what to do. I'm like, look at the other people who have been successful, who you would trade positions with and look what they did. Yes, it's totally true. In fact, I was talking to a client the other day and 
lots and lots of women and men, lots of people struggle with weight management and a lot of it is about their relationship with food. And this woman has had a number of weight loss surgeries, including a gastric bypass, so pretty extreme surgery. But we talked about the idea that her husband, he doesn't care about food, like he doesn't think about it. It's not important to him. And so I said to her, why don't you just think like him? She goes, what do you mean? I go, well, just you can change your thoughts. You could just think like him. And the more you think like him, like just start small, then the more you will be like him. And then food becomes, you know, not your dominant thought all the time. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. You can totally think like anybody you want to if you if you choose to. It's such great advice. And particularly if you're fortunate enough whether there's someone in your circle or in your day-to-day network who has that opposite thinking. Like one of my best friends is the complete opposite to me in nearly every way when it comes to personality. Like I'm very type A, go, go, go. And I struggle with like, gratitude journaling and and gratitude and being present in the moment, things that I've spent years trying to cultivate because they're not my natural default. He's the opposite. Like you nearly need to kick him out of bed every morning to get him to get up and go, but he is happy with his life. He doesn't need any more. And he takes the best of my personality and I try and take the best of his and you try and get this perfect kind of balance in between where you've got the sweet spot. And I think, as you said there with, you know, the girl and her husband, the exact same, you can take those personality traits and apply them in your own life to get the benefit. Absolutely. And then it just gets rid of that struggle. But, you know, like everything doesn't happen overnight, but with some time and guidance, you can, you're the master of your destiny. You're the driver. And Mary and I will talk often about this idea that you are not, you're not derailed, you're not falling off a wagon. They imply that you've got no control over the situation. You actually have. You're the driver of the vehicle. If your vehicle goes off path, you just can drive it back. You just need the skills and the knowledge and maybe some support to know how to do that. It's so true. And it's one of the language or the phrases that I use with people, very similar to that falling off the wagon, because that's a, that's an Irish terminology as well as, <laughs> as well as in Australia and, and other places, I'm sure. And I tell people when they fall off, I've got two trains of thought when it comes to things like self-sabotage with food in particular. One is, and you can blurt this out because it's, it's the phrase I use in books, it's don't press the fuck it button when you've gone off track, (laughs) meaning that something has happened in life and you've like, bang, fuck it button, you know, stress at work. You know, I've eaten one bad meal. I may as well eat 10 bad meals. I've had a bad Saturday. The weekend's gone. You're pressing the fuck it button and you're just spiraling what's effectively, you know, digging yourself in a hole and you're digging down deeper. And I have a philosophy of just resetting when that happens. If you go off plan for whatever reason, you've gone to a wedding, you've gone to an event, there's been something at the weekend, somebody brought cake into work, you've gone off plan. That's cool. You're not a bad person for eating cake. Like, but no. yet we can, <laughs> and, and we have, it's, it's weird. We have the language where the guilt and the shame around the food, I'm like, well, you're not a bad person. You ate some cake, enjoy it. Like I would argue the opposite side, cake tastes amazing, enjoy it. But don't let a slice turn into the whole cake. Like you reset and you go back on plan. And I know that's, such simplistic language for somebody who might have a deep underlying emotional root and trigger for their cause for binge eating or anything along those lines. But the 
tactics are pretty much the same. It just might take you longer to get to that point in terms of how to use that strategy and how to use those tactics. But it can be really useful for people. Like if you're finding that you've gone off plan, the analogy I use in books and on podcasts is if you have one bad meal and then say, fuck it, and you go off plan for the rest of the day or the rest of the weekend or the rest of the week, it's like driving down the motorway or the highway, getting one flat tire and then getting out and slashing your other three tires because one went flat. <laughs> it's, it's the dietary equivalent of that. Yes. And we wouldn't do it with our car, but we do it with our nutrition. And I think if you can stop yourself doing that and just resetting every time you do, similar to that what's important now philosophy, it becomes the new conditioning where you don't press the fuck it button and you reset and you do that consistently. Like that's a really useful tool that I found with a lot of my clients when it comes to dealing with self-sabotage around food, particularly those who don't have the healthiest relationship with food because it stops them demonizing themselves first and foremost and then it allows them to get back on track and it's about what you consistently do like one chocolate bar is not going to put you off plan one slice of cake is probably not going to put you off plan it's your overall nutrition your overall caloric intake your overall macros good all these other things that determine that but if you eat a full cake every night yeah it's probably not going to help but your weight loss goals like the danger is in the dose so you're applying context to your situation and then using tools that can potentially help you yes I love that phrase, context to your situation, because you're absolutely right. I mean, it's tricky because I know there's this story in our head that will go, well, one slice of cake's all right. It's no big deal. And that that's absolutely true. It's a true statement, except for lots of people don't stop at one slice. And for a lot of people, they'll then keep going back to the fridge until it's gone because then they get to the point where they go, oh, this cake's driving me nuts. I've got to just get rid of it. And the way to get rid of it is to eat it. And it's like, huh. It's interesting, isn't it? Because really the way to get rid of it is to shove it in the bin. If you don't want to have it, if it's bothering you, if it's causing you distress, chuck it in the bin. But instead we use our body like the bin and we eat it instead. We go, good, now it's gone. It's like, hmm, doesn't really. But you know what, Lucy? I The language I had to use around that as somebody that didn't have the healthiest relationship with food is when those moments would come, I would ask myself, what's this next slice of cake going to satisfy that the last slice didn't? And I think when you bring a little bit of more awareness to that, it can be helpful because it's so tempting. And I've been there. I've been the person that's gone one slice, two slice, three slice. Well, I may as well finish it now. Yeah. But in those moments when you ask, well, what's this next slice going to satisfy that the last slice didn't? It can be quite helpful to just kind of knock you out of that automatic eating and then it's gone which can happen. Like I used to always feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, like somebody else took over, took the wheel to keep your analogy, took over the wheel for a temporary moment of time. And then the cake was gone. And it's just bringing awareness to what you're doing, I think is important there. Again, as I said, I don't want to simplify something that can be a lot more difficult based on behavioral issues and, and history and all the reasons that people potentially numb out and food would soothe. But it is something that has helped me. So I wanted to share it. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're, you're right. And, and I do love the, the idea of a fuck up button. I, I think that, <laughs> you know, you can decide at any stage, you can decide mid-mouthful if you want to, that you don't actually want to eat this food anymore. You can spit it out. It's funny, I, you're obviously a storyteller and I love a raconteur and we did the same. And one of my analogies is the idea that if you were – cleaning out your shed say you've got a shed or a garage and you've got all this junk in it and you've decided to clean it all out and you're getting halfway through and you know it's, it's getting a bit hard and you look down at your feet and suddenly you've realized that a box that you put out 
has somehow managed to, to find its way back into your shed. And you go, oh, that's interesting. You don't then go around to the neighbours and ask for all their junk. Can I have all your junk <laughs> and bring it back into my shed? Because that would be ridiculous. But that's kind of what we do when we've made a little, maybe a slip, and we go, oh, well, stuff it now. I might as well just go the whole hog. I might as well just go and find everything that I haven't been eating and eat it all now in one day. It's kind of the same. So I think the interesting thing is that this is clearly the way our brain thinks around the world. It's not just Australians. It's not just New Zealanders. You know, it's Irish people. It's English people. It's Indian people. It's all, it's it's the way our brain is often some of it's wiring but some of it is just conditioning as well and um, I'm sure that you are experienced with things like untangling stories in people's heads around particularly with things like emotional eating this idea that you know in movies in fact I watched a movie the other night and this young girl in it was having a fight with her parents I think and she just sort of ran into her room and she opened the drawer and in the drawer where is a batch of cookies and she sits down and she eats them angrily. And that's to kind of deal with the annoyance of her parents. So when people talk to you about that sort of thing, what, what sort of advice do you give them? One of the most popular things that made its way into my last book was off the back of something that I would regularly put to clients. And that was separating emotional hunger from physical hunger. And this is something that was very obvious to me, a little bit of curse of knowledge on my side, for sure, as someone who's kind of been through it, has qualified and can speak to it. A lot of people weren't able to differentiate the difference between emotional hunger and physical hunger. So in the book, I give a table of the difference between the two, but two very simple check-ins is emotional hunger tends to be a lot more head-based where it, it, it feels like it's all above the neck and then physical hunger tends to be lower down. And the other is emotional hunger tends to be very sudden, and physical hunger is a lot more gradual. And those two check-ins for people can straight away identify that, oh, I'm going to emotion, this is emotional eating now. I'm actually not hungry. I'm feeling emotional and now I'm using food to soothe that. Physical hunger is a natural thing. It's a physiological response. It's how we all are. It's how we're evolutionary and biologically evolved. Emotional hunger isn't, it's conditioned. It's down to either past traumas or conditioning around food or a whole host of other things that could potentially be setting it off. And that check-in, if you're feeling it right now off the back of listening to this podcast and you're not sure, they're the two. How quickly did that hunger come on? And is it in your head or is it in your body? And I think that check-in gets you up and running and started. And then it's just about, well, what happened? Like with clients I work with who will have, and people fall off track. I actually am totally fine with clients falling off track. I'm like, well, now is the best time. We're working together so we can actually use this failure as feedback now and see what went on here so that it won't happen again. Like, I don't want you working with me for the rest of your life. That's not my job as a coach. It's to facilitate you and give you the tools so that you're able to do all of this yourself. And when that happens, I'll get people to go back on what happened prior to the binge eating? What happened prior to pressing the fuck it button? What happened prior to saying stuff it and just eating what you wanted? And there'll be clues there. You know, they had a fight with a partner or they're super stressed out at work or they didn't sleep well that night. There'll be something that happened. And when they go back on past experiences, when it happened, they're like, oh, actually, I always turn to food when I'm stressed at work or I always have really poor food choices if I've had a poor night's sleep. And they'll start to see that thread or they'll start to see that connection or that line between 
this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm reacting. And this is what happened right around that time. And once they have that awareness, it makes it easier to put a plan in place around it. Totally. I totally love that. And um, we use a similar sort of, we we use an alliteration, the SLC. So SLC can be the things that people do when they have a little slip, a lapse or creep. So that's when they're off their plan. But you can then use those same letters, which are self-reflection, learning, and you do it with compassion. And we always say that if you do it, you can't berate yourself well and you can't hate yourself thin. If you look, are able to actually look and listen to what's going on and reflect, because often what happens, you press the fucker button and then you go, oh, fine. And then you just, you don't actually want to think about it ever again. It's like, oh, my God, that was such a terrible time. I can't believe I did that. I ate a whole lot of cake and now I don't want to think about it. And so you just try and move on. And it's like there's no, you don't give yourself the opportunity to work out what happened. And when you can do that SLC, you can actually, as you said, use the the failure, the slip, the lapse, whatever word you want to use and learn from it so that you can go, oh, Actually, I do see this pattern emerging. So I do. I love that. I love what you're saying there. Yeah, I love that SLC. That's so good. And that relationship with failure and seeing failure, quote unquote, as a bad thing, I think is a detriment to most people hitting their end goal because failure isn't a bad thing. It's not even an end product. Failure is feedback on what didn't work. And you can use that feedback to improve going forward. So rewiring your relationship with that, I think, is really important as well. Absolutely. I think that this idea, if we could sort of reframe that everything is like an experiment, like you get to decide. And and the thing about an experiment is it either works or it doesn't. So you can decide something. And if it doesn't work, we go, well, that was an experiment. No, no, it didn't work. Good. Excellent. I won't do that again. Whereas it's not just, oh my God, I'm useless. I'm so weak. I can't believe I did that. I'm I'm never going to get there and go down that spiral of negativity. That's so true. And it's, What's so funny about it, as you said earlier, it doesn't matter if you're Irish, Australian, New Zealand, American, Canadian, wherever, we all have these same stories and dialogues that go on in our heads. And that's all they are. They're stories. And when you can start to question that story, because a story is effectively just a, what I would argue in an unsupportive sense when it comes to weight loss or whatever you're telling yourself, it's just a behavior pattern that you've repeated to yourself over and over until it's became a belief. And that's is all it is. You can change that. If you put new information into your head and you're listening to podcasts like this and conversations like this, and then you're doing the reflection yourself. Like I think journaling is a very underutilized tool when it comes to identifying what's going on with your weight loss, self-sabotage particularly, because those things that keep coming up and over and over again, you know, keeping with the success leaves clues, failure also leaves clues, but you can learn from that if you're documenting it yourself with journaling or even just making notes on your phone or, you know, talking back and forth with a coach or whatever it is. I think once you have awareness around it, and as you said, you're bringing that SLC to it, I think that's important, that compassion, self-love, all of those things, like there's no point being hard on yourself when you've gone off plan. Like it doesn't help. And I would be the first to be like, if that worked, you should use that. But, you know, you can only whip a dog so long before it stops, you know, coming back to you. And that's effectively what you're doing with yourself. So it's not a good strategy. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, we, <laughs> I love dog analogies. I use a lot of them and I will often talk about a dog. And as- I would never whip a dog, by the way. Just, <laughs> just- <laughs> 
just to just to clarify, I'm a dog person. I wouldn't whip an animal. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Don't worry. I would never skin a cat either. I know there's many ways to do it, but um, but yeah, I totally agree. And I will often talk about that. This idea that if you have a dog and you you just yell at it all the time. Yes, it might be obedient, but it cowers in the corner and it, it's not thriving, it's not living, it just spends its life in fear. Whereas if you, you know, encourage the dog, you reward the dog, you tell the dog it's doing a good job when it's doing a good job and you're firm but fair because, again, if you're not firm with the dog, we all know what happens. We've all seen those people who've got dogs that just are out of control. Firm but fair, rewarding. It just makes such a big difference. Couldn't agree more. I think if, if applying that to ourselves is it sounds so simple but there's genius in simplicity because it's so true ah uh seriously i reckon if i had a dollar for every time i'd said something is so simple they're simple and easy and they're quite they can be different i think we use them interchangeably but they're not it's a bit like meditation it's simple the concept is so simple but it's not that easy yeah yeah so true yeah yeah so um so if people who have slightly fallen in love with your Irish accent and want to contact you or, <laughs> or work with you or find you. How do, how do they do that? Oh, thanks so much, Lucy. I've had an absolute blast. This has been a lovely chat, so it's been awesome to connect. Uh, but my podcast, the Brian Keane Podcast, if you like the sound of my voice and podcasts, which you're listening to now, that's probably the best place. And Instagram, I'm on all the social media channels. I'm on everything, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, etc. But Instagram is TikTok. kind of my prime, primary one. Are you doing TikTok? I, I have I have nearly a quarter of a million followers on TikTok. Would you believe, Dr. Lucy? Yes. Oh, for some straight, for some ludicrous reason, I have people following me on TikTok and it's all just silly videos. Now, to be fair, I was on it quite early during COVID and I was putting up a lot of home workout stuff and it exploded. It went from like 2,000 to you know, 200,000 in like six months because of the workout and home workout video. So I, I, it's COVID that got me that. <laughs> so as opposed to having the in-depth great content on TikTok, I think it was more right place, right time. Uh, but I'm on it. I'm on it. But, uh, Wonderful. Is my, is my main platform is where I'm normally on myself. Oh, awesome. Well, I might have to get some TikTok lessons. And in fact, this is one of the things that uh, Mary and I often talk about is the idea that if you don't know how to do something or you think you should know how to do it, like I could probably go and Google a video on how to do TikTok, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be able to do it. And, um, you know, Instagram Reels is <laughs> something that Mary and I keep thinking, oh, we should do those. And I've watched a couple of videos. I'm going to have to go and get a Reels coach because it's just something that I, I struggle with, even though it seems so simple. And I think that's what our brain says. It's so simple. I shouldn't need someone to help me do this so simple I shouldn't need a coach it's so simple I should be able to do this by myself and you know what if you've tried and you haven't been able to then just go and get yourself a coach like seriously it's not you know it's it's really the answer because at the end of the day if you want to get where you want to go and you can't do it by yourself there's no shame in asking and getting help 100% more funny you mentioned that because one of the best investments I ever made was a, a puppy course when I got my dog Rocco he's a Staffordshire Bull Terrier and I spent I think it was $100 or $120 on a course on how to train my dog so from the day I brought him home as a pup I started training him and now he's the best behaved dog he's nearly one now 
And I had just didn't know how to do it. And I was like, well, it's simple to train a dog, you know, teach them to sit and teach them to stay. And I was like, you know what? This guy's an expert. I'm going to go and see what he does. And I was like, oh my God, I actually wouldn't have thought of some of these things. And it was the best investment I ever made. So I couldn't agree more with that. If there's something you don't know, regardless of how quote unquote simple it might seem, sometimes you're just better. And that might not be me, you know, Dr. Lucina might not even be you, might be someone else you've interviewed or somebody else that people connect with. But there's someone out there who can help you and it's about finding who's going to be a good fit for you you know square peg into square holes try and find who's going to be the best fit for you and help you with your journey absolutely i love that and you know what i also think is that and and you mentioned it before that you don't want to coach somebody forever the idea is that you give somebody the skills you help them you support them and it's basically like you're the mama bird with the baby birds in the nest and the idea is that they do you want them to go you, do, you want them to be able to fly independently. What we don't really want is a baby bird just to sort of splat in the ground. That's unhelpful. But, you know, the greatest joy is to see your baby birds fly off. Couldn't agree more. And I think any coach and most coaches, and you'll see that a lot of people have that same philosophy and that's who you're looking to seek out that can help you. Wonderful, wonderful. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. It has been a delight. I've had a hoot. And um, I think that a lot of our listeners will go and look you up. Can you just remind me of the name of your two books? Because I think that our, our, our listeners are readers. We love, we've got a little book group going on. So yeah, tell us. Amazing. So The Fitness Mindset was my first book. And the most recent one was The Keen Edge, Mastering the Mindset for Real Lasting Fat Loss. So both kind of similar in the sense of they're addressing the mindset side of fitness. The most recent one's a bit more in depth. And the first one's a bit more shorter to kind of get it as an introductory point for people. Beautiful. All right, lovelies. Beautiful listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I will catch you next week and um, hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead. Have a lovely time. Take care. Bye for now. So, my lovely listeners, that ends this episode of Real Health and Weight Loss. I'm Dr. Lucy Burns. And I'm Dr. Mary Barson. We're from Real Life Medicine. To contact us, please visit rlmedicine.com. And until next time, thanks thanks for for listening. listening. The information shared on the Real Health and Weight Loss podcast, including show notes and links, provides general information only. It is not a substitute, nor is it intended to provide individualized medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, nor can it be construed as such. Please consult your doctor for any medical concerns.